You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, I went to turn uh, my microphone on and it was already on. Thank you, Jason, so kindly for uh, taking care of me there. Uh, you wouldn't have wanted to hear that singing. Uh, so. It was great singing. I cannot tell you how many times. I know, of course, musicians, preacher would recognize the connections. But the Holy Spirit, week after week, in addition to David's strong planning, the Holy Spirit just puts things together like you wouldn't believe. Even David's prayer um, uh, during the, the worship time very much dovetails with what is going to be said here uh, this morning. A couple of things I want to mention. Discovery lunch next week. Uh, if you have been coming to Grace for any length of time, or if this is your first Sunday, and you're thinking, well, I'd like to know a little bit more about that church. Next Sunday, after the service, we're going to have our elders and staff here to meet you. We would love to have lunch with you. We're going to have I, if I'm not mistaken, it's steak and lobster. It may not be. It may just be pizza, but it could be steak and lobster. So sign up in the, lo- in the lobby. Off to the uh, left of the lobby is um, the welcome room, and please sign up. And you may have been coming for two or three months, but if you've never been to one of those discovery lunches, you don't have to introduce yourself. It's just very informal, casual. We may say a few things about some of the ministries here at Grace, but not, not much. It's really just to get to know people. So we invite you to do that, but we do need to know if you're going to come. So there's a sign-up sheet in the welcome room just off to the left of the lobby. Also, by next Sunday, when I will be preaching, I will have begun a sabbatical, two-month sabbatical, the second month of which is really just vacation. But the first month in June, I'm going to be preaching um, several of the weeks, three of the four weeks, uh, and because of what David said, when people come to a church to check it out, now it's the summer. It used to be September. Now, for whatever reason, especially June. So be on the lookout for other people. And you know our numbers have been growing, and the elder said, would you please continue to speak in June so we'll see if we can't thin it out a little bit. We don't want, you know, to... Uh, we don't want to go to two services in the fall. So, so no, really, you, people want to, at some point, hear the guy that's going to be doing most of the preaching. So I'll be here for, for Sundays, but that's it. Sunday mornings, that's it. If you send an email, I'll probably kick back. If I can figure out how to do that, you know, I'm on sabbatical, all that stuff. I'll get some help uh, along the way, I'm sure. But thank you so much for just your love for Jesus, your love for one another. We love you, and it'll be so good to be here on Sunday mornings uh, during the rest of the time that we are uh, taking time off. I plan to do a lot of reading, a lot of uh, focus on spiritual disciplines, and um, looking forward to, to that time of refreshment. So, uh, to begin this morning, I want to ask you if you agree with these three statements, if any of them or maybe all of them. First, God's design for a successful life is made clear in His Word. You follow Scripture, your life is going to be good. Two, the ways of God 
are counterintuitive. So it almost feels contradictory because here you've got this grand design, and if you follow it, things go well, but then it gets tricky, and God's ways can be counterintuitive. And then three, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I would agree with all three of these statements. One of the reasons that God's law was given was to serve as a guideline for his children. And if you follow the law of God, you, you live according to the book of Proverbs, things are going to go pretty well for you. You'll be successful uh, in every area of your life. Well, that was the Old Testament promise to God's children. If you will follow the law, everything will go good for you. You'll have long life. You're, you'll be blessed spiritually, financially. Your crops will be good. The rains will come at the right time. Uh, and, and all will go well with you. Uh, the problem was, of course, that we're all born sinners before Jesus and after Jesus, and no one can keep the law of God perfectly. Uh, that's another purpose of the law, to reveal our sin. So that in the Old Testament, the even greater promise was that in spite of your sin, if you will believe me, and if you will believe my promises, you will have eternal life. Isn't that what it says about Abraham? It says it not only in Galatians and Romans, it says it in Genesis. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. In these New Testament days, we understand the object of our trust to be in Jesus and his death on the cross in the place of sinners. Even so, we are saved the same way Old Testament saints were, believe in the promises of God. It's just that the promises are much more clear to us now than they were in Old Testament days. There is no doubt, though, when we live, even when nations function according to biblical principles, they are much more successful than if you do not function according to biblical principles. God set a certain way of living. If we follow that way... Things go well. Uh, it's also true that in a fallen world, sometimes things just don't go according to script. That's shocking news to many of you, I understand. You plan your life out. You do everything just right. And then it just falls to pieces. I mean, there are times when you pray, Lord, I know that it is not your will for my spouse to walk away from me. So I'm going to pray, and I know you're going to answer this. I know it is not your will for my loved one to die. I know this. And then the very thing that you pray against happens. Sometimes things hit you so out of the blue, never see it coming, and you're like, what is up with this? Where did this come from? How can this be? How can this possibly be God's will? And then you read scripture and it tells you that God is sovereign and all powerful and wise. And eventually, either you'll walk away from God or you will come to trust that although his ways are often mysterious and even downright counterintuitive, he is perfect in all that he does. Think about that. God is perfect. And all that he does. And we say, yeah, 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 yeah. Until, boom. It's like, whoa. I can't. That just doesn't, it, it doesn't fit. 
What about this last one? Indeed, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You are probably tempted to think that because of these technological advances that we are smarter and more capable of meeting all challenges that come our way than any people in, in all of history. And there is some truth to that in the sense that, look, many of you are alive. I shouldn't say many. Some of you are alive today because of the advances in medicine. I... I just get so excited talking to medical students and medical personnel about all the new things coming down the pike. And then I talk to IT people and I get scared. But it's technology makes us think we're smarter because all the information in the world is right here at our fingertips. But if you think that technology has made us smarter as a people, that's really a naive understanding of what technology has done for us or to us should say. Um, we have the world at our fingertips and we know less about the world than many, most of the generations before us in this land. So, um, furthermore, we have the same problem that, that, that people before had before Jesus. We are sinners who would far rather manage our own lives and other people's lives than to trust God to work His plan According to his wisdom, for his glory, and our good. Because all of these statements are accurate at significant levels. The Old Testament book of Isaiah has a great deal to say to us. As much, in fact, as it did to God's covenant people to whom it was written in the 8th century B.C. If you're here for the first time, you may have discerned, discerning person that you are, that we're in a study in the book of Isaiah. Um, there are more verses with high impact that come from this book than any of us, I think, are aware. I mean, every week I read something, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's in Isaiah. I've read it through many times, but it, when you're doing it like this, you can't believe how many awesome verses are in Isaiah. The benefit of working through a book like we're doing this year, though, is that when those great verses are put into their historical and spiritual context, into the historical spiritual context in, in which they were originally written, it's only then that we fully begin to understand how it is that this great book, these great promises of God, and these words about judgment apply to us in our lives, in our contemporary and cultural context. So the foundation for today's message has been laid over the past several months. But with the briefest of reviews, the map of the Middle East in Isaiah's time that was drawn specially for this particular time, I have permission now to tell you that it was Sarah Calvert who did it. I'm not looking at her, so in case she's changed her mind, you know, she can't uh, change her mind on this. Sarah did this awesome map that just gives us an idea. And there's another one coming. We were talking about it a while ago this morning. That shows a later period of time. But now what, what was happening in Isaiah's day? He was in Judah. The star of uh, David up there is representing Jerusalem. And uh, Judah constituted God's covenant people. Israel and Judah had all been one nation just simply known as Israel. Until the northern tribes broke off and they became Israel. There were no good kings. If you ever try to think which kings were good, which were bad... There were no good kings in Israel's history, none. One or two got close to being good, but none. They all recognized that the temple was in Jerusalem, 
And if they worshiped the God who had made his home in the temple at Jerusalem, then the people would say, well, why are we two different nations? And so they set up places to worship, worship God in, in their own land. And, of course, that didn't work. So Israel had broken off from Judah. And now Judah is, is they're not in a good place. The, there, are, there are four kings mentioned in Isaiah's time and a fifth one who very much was a part of Isaiah's time at the end of Isaiah's life and may have caused it, the end of his life. But of those four kings that are mentioned at the first of Isaiah, three of them were relatively good. One was exceedingly wicked, and the trajectory of Israel was down. It's just like a, a stock market chart, you know? It's like, okay, well, it's better now than it was last week, but it's not better than it was last month. And it just was trending downward. And even the good kings had their issues. And the primary issue they had was trust. Especially King Ahaz, who was a wicked king, sacrificed his sons to, to the god Molech in a horrible, awful way uh, in order to, to try to find some way to help overcome the problem that was coming toward them, which was Assyria at the top of the map. Assyria was about to gobble up Syria and Israel and Tyre and Philistia. All of these nations were going down within a very short time when we get to Isaiah 28, which is where we are today. And the kings of Judah were constantly trying to make um, alliances with other nations. And in today's uh, in the next several weeks, actually, uh, chapters 28 through 35, Judah's trying to reach out to Egypt to help protect them. But look, Egypt didn't care about Judah. They just, they just said, it's in our interest to help you because that keeps Assyria further, farther away, farther north from us than, than they are now. And, and Isaiah was continually saying, now, this is not what you want to do. You want to trust God. Military conflicts were at the heart of much of Isaiah's confrontation with these Judean kings. Again, especially with the godless king of Ahaz. So, that's a little bit of context. Here's the plan for today. For our initial reading, we'll be in Isaiah 29, verses 15 to 24. We're going to look at Isaiah 28 and 29. <clears throat> and as I've told you before... These are not divisions you'll find necessarily anywhere in any study. It's just our way of trying to work through the book of Isaiah. No way we're going to be able to cover every uh, verse. Three or four weeks ago, we covered 11 chapters in one day. Um, but for, for the most part, we're going to be in Isaiah 28 today. But we're, we'll read uh, initially in Isaiah 29, verses 15 to 24. Throughout these chapters, there are six woes sections. In the ESV it reads, ah. It might read, oh, you, oh ho, you know, listen up. But it means, as it is written in the King James, literally it means woe. And there are six woes to the land of Judah that are given. Uh, Isaiah 29.15 starts one, but it quickly moves into good news. Then after prayer we're going to Work through the first half of Isaiah 28 in pretty quick fashion. And then discover how directly this text speaks to our lives today. 
So we begin in Isaiah 29, verses 15 to 24. It's our custom to stand as the scripture is read. So if you would please stand for the reading of the word. <laughs> ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, <coughs> who says, who sees us? Who knows us? God doesn't have any idea what's going on. You turn things upside down. <coughs> Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me or the thing formed say of him who formed it. He has no understanding. And now just like that, good news. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing and the scoffer cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him. Who reproves in the gate. And with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children the work of my hands in his midst. They will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. Let's pray. Father, we long to be those who accept instruction. Well, in reality, we long to live according to our own ways. And yet, when the Spirit of God dwells in us, we have a deep desire to be those who accept instruction. Give us a heart that will do so, whether the instruction is pleasant to our thinking or difficult. And Lord, we hear your instructions in your word. So today... As we consider this difficult and majestic text from Isaiah 28, I pray that you would open our hearts and make us receptive and responsive to the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. I have to tell you, a lot of Isaiah is pretty complex. I think this is the toughest that I've come to. I don't know that I would have understood it apart from the help of commentaries. Always, I understand scripture much better with commentaries. But I'm telling you, this one, I wouldn't have gotten at all without the help of commentaries. Um, as, it, the next few minutes, I'm going to take a bit of time to explain what is going on in Isaiah 28. And you will be like I was when I'm reading. It's like, well, yeah, of course, I get that now. But <clears throat> chapter 28 begins with 
Isaiah, and by the way, this, the verses will be on the screen. I'm not going to read them. Chapter 28 begins with Isaiah rebuking the godless leaders of Israel, who was north of Judah. Isaiah's in Judah, but he's still connected. There are still people back and forth all the time, and his message would get to the nation of Israel. And remember, Ephraim, Israel is called Ephraim, the primary tribe in the north. Judah was the primary tribe in the south, but Ephraim's in the north. And so he, he rebukes Ephraim rather than calling out to God to help them in their imminent crisis with Assyria. Uh, the nation's leaders were holding drunken parties wearing festive uh, garlands on their heads. They didn't want to acknowledge his voice. Verse 2 points out that their real problem was not with Assyria but with the Lord who would send Assyria against Israel, the Lord whom they had abandoned. People get it wrong when they say, God sent Jesus to save us from ourselves. No, God sent Jesus to save us from him, from himself. Because God's wrath must be poured out on sin. It has to be, it can't go Undone. It's like a sickness when you go to a doctor and he says, we have to treat this. If we don't, you're going to die. God has to pour out judgment on sin. And so it went to Jesus instead of us. In verse 7, many scholars think that Isaiah moves from speaking to the leaders of Israel now to the leaders of Judah, using the same analogy of uncontrolled drunken parties that result in the depths of human degradation to which those parties often deteriorate. They live as though they are in control of their own lives. And yeah, give me another drink. I'll swallow all the wine I want. And all the time, the wine is swallowing them. They become victims of the very things that they thought would at least give them a little bit of relief from their pain. Their drunken state causes the leaders to mock Isaiah. Who does he think he is? Who's he teaching? Babies, precept upon precept, line upon line, a little of this, a little of that. Really, literally, in the Hebrew, that's kind of what is going on. They're just like, oh, you're talking to a little baby. Line upon line, precept upon precept. The leaders were accusing Isaiah of being simplistic. It's just like people today say, wait a minute. You're telling me that if I'm a murderer, adulterer, and all the other errors in the, in the commandments, I'm all of those, a liar, or whatever. And I just ask Jesus into my heart, I, I, I'm going to heaven, and this good person over here, who is as good as anybody has ever, is not, they're going to hell? Are you, is that what you're well, I'm just saying the scripture, I don't want to hear that. That's essentially what they were doing. They're like, trust God. When Assyria's right there, I think I'll get drunk. And then they get drunk and they start mocking Isaiah. There's a difference between simple and simplistic. People say that all the time. Oh, I know that's simplistic. No, no, no. There's a difference. What you're saying is absolutely right. Just because something is simple does not mean it is simplistic. But you can make something simplistic out of something simple very, very quickly. Uh, Isaiah's message, though simple, was profound. 
God created you. He called you to be his people. And if you will trust him, he will deliver you from any and all oppressors. Now, the message to us in the New Testament is different than it was in the Old Testament slightly. We don't get promised protection. In fact, if we all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Old Testament, obey me and I will bless you. New Testament, obey me, serve me, live for me, you'll be persecuted. That's just the way it is. But in being persecuted, we're more like Jesus. I shouldn't have started that. I don't have time to finish it, but I can talk to you about it later. Um, so in mocking Isaiah, who were the people mocking? They were mocking God, right? And so God said, okay, you won't line upon line, you'll get it. But it will be a foreign tongue that teaches you. In other words, the Lord said through Isaiah, I'm going to hand you over to Assyrians and they will teach you the lesson from me that you refuse to hear from me. It's my message, you won't hear it from me, I'll get someone else to teach you. You'll learn the lesson in, in a different language. Essentially, God said, and look, he can say this in the right way. We cannot say this in the right way. But God was essentially saying, you won't, I'll give it to you. You ask for it, you'll receive it. These are difficult words from God's prophet. And then it's so often the case, and I say a good news, incredible news that seems to come out of nowhere. But it was part of God's plan from before the world ever began. Verse 16, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste or whoever believes will not be in a panic even though the leaders accused Isaiah of being simplistic they had no earthly idea what he was talking about because their hearts were closed to God's word and and do you remember those of you who were saved at a later age how much gobbledygook the Bible seemed to you and then you were saved. And I mean, overnight, all of a sudden, it just comes alive. And you get it. You understand it. And you're thinking, oh, how could I have been so blind? Well, you were blind. We were all blind until our eyes were open. Until the Lord did this beautiful work for us. Surely the people knew when Isaiah said this, that he was prophesying good news <coughs> Of, of, of Yahweh's love for his wayward people. But they rejected Isaiah's immediate appeal to trust God rather than Egypt. In the verses surrounding uh, verses 16 and 17, Isaiah accused the leaders of making a covenant with death in the grave. And again, you just start reading through and you're like, what, what's he talking about exactly? He's talking about Egypt and pagan gods. But, and, and that'll come clear in a few chapters, but... Not in these two chapters. He just uses this language that, that they understood, but it takes a little help for us to understand it. The promise of a cornerstone contained both judgment and salvation. Although Isaiah did not know the extent of God's blessing that would fully be realized in Jesus 
the New Testament authors had no problem whatsoever making the connection with this verse and other verses as well. Uh, unfortunately, many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day would trip over the cornerstone that God had laid in Jerusalem. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. Let's just look at these. Just, just look at this. I'm not going to comment. Just read them. As you, as you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, <clears throat> chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. As you see all of these Old Testament verses coming up here, let me just remind you, the New Testament is essentially the Old Testament rewritten in light of the gospel. That's what it is. Everywhere in the New Testament, either direct quotes or um, allusions to truth in the Old Testament. So, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. <clears throat> in verse 8, and a, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense from Isaiah 8, 14. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Moving on. Um, the point of Isaiah 28, 16 is that God will do for his people what they are incapable of doing for themselves. He will send Jesus to keep the law perfectly. And the Lamb of God will die for sinners. And whoever believes in him will be saved. That's not all right there, but that's the point. Whoever believes in him will not be in haste or not be in a panic. But just like the leaders who mocked Isaiah for delivering God's promises of security for those who would trust him, most of the leaders of Jesus' time were drunk with power. Just didn't want to hear it. And the mocking continues to this day. Just as they stood around the cross and they mocked Jesus. Yeah, him who would save others. Let him save himself. The mocking continues as those who share the good news of the gospel are often ridiculed and marginalized. So that the conventional wisdom of the day might prevail. Conventional wisdom, by the way, that changes by the hour in our internet age. My friend Jimmy, I've told you about a lot of times, I asked him what he thought about a particular Bible verse. He said, I don't know. I have to check my notes and see what I believe. And so we're almost like that. I have to check the internet and see if it's still for me to go out and scream the stuff I was screaming yesterday. Because I, I, I don't know. I just need to make sure that everything is just right. Uh, look, we've, we, we've covered a lot of ground today. And the implications from God's word are heavy. I, I want to make 
five points, give five points of application with just a little bit of commentary, but you can ponder these on your own this week, or better, you can discuss them in your home group. First is this, you cannot escape your problems by running away from them. But there are two kinds of runners, right? Sprinters and long-distance runners. Long-distance runners realize you can't <laughs> expend all your energy early on or you just won't make it. You'll just fall out of the race or slow down so much that they pass you by. You have to conserve your energy, that kind of thing. When it comes to problems, I am a, a, a unique athlete. I'm a long-distance sprinter. You know, I mean, I'm just... <laughs> you, you, but we can't do that. We don't get to do that. Sooner or later, you know, the long arm of the Lord says, okay, son, turn around. And you, before you know it, you're running right back to it. And the Lord says, but I'm going to take care of it for you. I'm going to do this for you. The leaders of Israel and Judah sought to escape reality by their drunken parties in which they disgraced themselves. And they mocked God. They wanted to dull the pounding of a Assyria being not, not on their doorstep, but at the front gate. And, and God's prophetic word. They wanted to forget about their troubles. But extreme trouble was on their doorstep, whether they acknowledged it or not. Look, the Bible is not against wine. I was kidding Ricky uh, last week from the, his text. Isaiah's talking about how you will drink rich wine. I said, Ricky, you can just say the Bible's not against uh, wine. It's just against cheap wine. You know, it's good. It's, but the Bible is not against wine. But it is absolutely always uncategorically against drunkenness. Always. And by the way, if alcohol is a problem in your family, if you have the slightest issue, you better stay away from it. First of all, get help. I, I, in all the years here, I don't know. that I know a very few alcoholics but most of the time that's pretty much kept at home but look it doesn't matter if it's alcohol if it's something else we've all got our distractions right we've all got the stuff that we think will give us a little bit of escape and we can just forget about our problems for a little while and the problem the, the problem is is that we tend to always want to forget about our problems and be distracted and never deal with them you know what your distraction is. The Judeans were experts at ignoring the signs of the times. And they were convinced that everything would work out okay. So it was best not to worry about something that might never happen, right? That'll never. Wrong. The best way to be prepared for life is to stay close to the Lord through his word. If, as Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God, the word of Christ, by which many think Paul meant the gospel, the word of Christ, not just scripture, but especially the gospel message of scripture, then preach the gospel to yourself every day. You're just as wicked, I'm just as wicked as King Ahaz. Got our, we got our own mess. We're all sinners. And we need to be reminded 
that we cannot allow ourselves to be self-righteous, but we all need help from God. Every one of us needs forgiveness. You will be far more spiritually aware and protected from the mistake that is the second truth we'll consider this morning if you're in the Word. Those who mock God's Word will in the end be mocked by God. I know, I, I know, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. You know, maybe it's like we are in sports, you know, it's like, booyah, yeah, you know, we got you in your face, all that kind of stuff. But that's humans. Again, remember, God is perfect. And it is to our advantage that he is going to judge the wicked. Who are the wicked? All who don't believe in Jesus. And we think, oh, oh, I, I so want these people to be saved. And that's a right desire and a right passion. But one day when it's all said and done, it'll all make sense to us. And we'll understand that God had our back all along. When you think he's forsaking you, not so at all. And one of the ways that God has our back is this. that the, Those who mock God's word will in the end be mocked by a holy and righteous God. I, look, we, we prefer a God maybe who loves and treats everybody equally. We don't like to think about God mocking anyone. But it's a good time for us to remember that many of the people that God created turned away from him and mock him mercilessly. They despise him. They mock the gospel, a stumbling block to the Jews and utter foolishness to the Greeks, to, to, to the Greeks who were cousins to the Greeks. They call it baby talk or celestial child abuse. How can God put his own son to death? It's just yap, 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 yap. All the time. The religious want to think that God would never be found in human form. And he certainly wouldn't die on a cross. And the educated non-religious think that such belief is worthy of contempt. In both Romans and Colossians, Paul affirmed what David prayed in his prayer today. That before we came to Christ, we were enemies of God. All of us were enemies. We don't like to think in those terms. Maybe one of the reasons we don't like to think in those terms is because we have not had war on our land, in our land for over 150 years. We just, I mean, 9-11, sure, I, I, I get that. I understand that. But I'm talking about day in, day out, bombs falling, um, people dying all the time, being maimed, dismembered, all kinds. We don't, we don't see that every day, but that's the reality that a lot of the world lives with. And in all of history, it's the reality that people or the threat of it at any moment. And so God says we were his enemies because we completely rejected the one who created us. It's not a good idea to mock your creator. You know, perhaps the most cynical of all people are those who used to profess faith in Christ, but now, having seen the light, they feel compelled to atone for their foolish decision by mocking Christianity. And they're especially drawn to mock those who live according to a biblical worldview. And what is our response to be? To, to mock them right back? Absolutely not. That's God's business. 
our business is to love them and to forgive them. And are we ever more like Jesus than when we are forgiven our enemies? Those who have hurt us, those who mocked us, those who... I don't like it. I don't like it. You know, just in little small conversation, somebody says something like, oh, that's silly, that's stupid, or no, you're wrong about that. I'm like, we're so sensitive, you know. But God gives us the, the design. He says, I'm going to take care of that. You just, you just you pray for them because you were in the same boat they were. And you need to pray that they'll be saved. Otherwise, they will be mocked for all eternity apart from me. And that's what you deserve. But Jesus died for you. That's the focus of our third point. God sent his son. Cornerstone. Peace in a land of panic. When you read through the book of Isaiah, you will encounter these brilliant words of encouragement at the most unlikely of times. I mean, just think about it. Verse 8 says, all their tables were filled with vomit. These people were drunken messes and God was mocking them. And then he just turns around and says, out of the blue... I'm going to send a cornerstone. It's going to, the foundation's going to be laid in Jerusalem and it's going to be salvation. All who believe won't panic. Even in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic covenant of law, God's people surely discerned that if they were to be redeemed, the blessing would have to come from God and not from them. Just the most subtle shifts in the ways that we think move us away from the gospel. How often do you hear people talking about, oh, he's redeemed himself. She has redeemed herself. Well, yes, in a sense, okay, things have turned around in his or her life. But the only true redemption comes from Jesus. He's the one who redeems us and changes us. Redemption is of the Lord. It is not from within. The gospel is found everywhere in Scripture and often at the least expected places. As we stated a few weeks ago, look, God's pattern is often delay, 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 delay. Then a sudden and glorious response to the deepest desires of our hearts. Oftentimes when we've given up on it, it just comes out of nowhere. Why? Why does God delay so often? At the very least, that we will trust him. Why else? I don't know. The trust is greater when it's practiced without needing to know what God is doing. How many times have I heard, if I could just know what God is doing? You don't have to know. God doesn't want you to know or he would let you know. What he wants you to do is trust. The fourth point acknowledges our ability, inability to fully grasp God's way, ways. God works in mysterious ways, his wise and wonderful deeds to perform. In Isaiah 28, 21, we're told that God's ways are strange. Now, Isaiah had just referenced two places where God miraculously worked in Israel's behalf in war, on Israel's behalf in, in war. What was strange to Isaiah this time 
was that now God was going to fight again, but he was going to fight against Israel, against Judah. Why? Because God's purpose was to chasten his children and draw them back to himself. <clears throat> At the cross of Christ, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God that had righteously been, been righteously directed toward us. When we hide behind the cross through repentance and belief, we're no longer in danger of God's wrath being poured out on us through, throughout eternity. Look, if, if you're here today for the first time, if you've grown up in this church, if you are growing up in this church, in other words, if you're younger and and you just know there's something that you're just not getting. Know this. We're sinners. And if we were going to live with God in, for eternity, something had to be done. It's not that we had to get better. We can't get better. We're incapable of getting fully better. Of course, we grow and we change and we don't do things we used to do. But there's always something that's right there at the surface. So God loving us. Loving us. We read about this God of wrath, especially in the Old Testament. We read about the God of wrath, but he's there in the new as well. He was a God of love then, a God of love now. God of wrath then, God of, uh, uh, God of wrath then, God of wrath now. Love, love, both ways. It, it, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It said about Jesus. Jesus is God. We, he, something had to be done about our sin, and we were incapable of doing anything. So he sent his son Jesus, the cornerstone that he's talking about, who died on the cross in the most amazing, um, counterintuitive way of, of salvation that you could possibly imagine. God came to die for us so that we could be saved from his wrath. It couldn't be any other way. Why couldn't it? We're thinking like humans. We can figure it out, especially Americans, especially American men. We can figure it out, right? I don't know. Women are pretty, well, let's just, in trouble every week. I, I say something that gets me in trouble every single week. You're so merciful and patient. Thank you. Um, but God just asked us to do one thing, believe. And he says it in, the, in, in, in some of the strangest ways, doesn't he? When Jesus told Nicodemus, as the serpent was raised up in the Old Testament, in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be raised up. And what happened? If you looked at the serpent, what happened? You lived. But you had to look in faith. When we look at Jesus, when we see that he died for our sins, we acknowledge our sin and we, we confess, oh God, I'm a sinner. And I believe that Jesus died for me and right now I put my trust in him. And that implies I will follow you all the days of my life. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You're going to mess up the first day you're a Christian. You might not know that you've messed up, but you will. We'll sin. Every single day. But if you don't know, if nothing else is making sense, get that. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me because he died for sinners and I'm a sinner. I believe God saved me. And just like that, you become a child of God. Maybe that's part of the purpose of, of all of these incredible verses. Just, just like that, they appear. It's like horrible news and then boom. 
incredible news. In our day, God was using judgment on the nation of Israel to bring them back to him. In our day, God uses trials and difficulties in our lives to shape and to mold us into children who radiate and reflect the love that God has shown to the world through Jesus. For us to be more like Jesus, when people say, I want to be more like Jesus, then he would say, that's awesome. Take up your cross. Be willing to die daily. Follow me wherever I go, wherever I take you. And you should know that even though foxes and, and, and birds know where they're going to lay their head, I don't tonight. I don't know where I'm going to sleep. If you're cool with that, come on. So for us to be like Jesus is to live a cross-centered life. And a cross-centered life is often painful. In Isaiah 28, 23 through 29, the very end of this chapter, really, you read these verses and you're like, what, what, what's he saying exactly? The prophet is talking about a farmer, not, not a rich farmer who's got all the equipment and knows, he knows the science, and knows, but just a tenant farmer, a poor tenant farmer. And he says he understands how it works. You, you have to break up this ground. You have to plow, run the plow through the ground. And you just think about what the ground, if the ground could feel what the ground is feeling. And then you beat the grain, you know, you beat the wheat, you, you, you're separating it all out. Why? For a purpose to bless mankind. Whatever God does is both for his glory and our good. Remember, whatever goes for God's glory is for our good. So, in other words, when people give their lives for being Christians and people... As we were seeing not many years ago, are lined up and, and beheaded because they had faith in Jesus Christ. Is God glorified through that? Yes, he is. He is. That's very difficult for us to understand. But whatever is for God's glory is for our good. The good of the whole, but the good of the individual as well. How can that be good? I don't know. Trust God. Because what we see is just a teeny, 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 teeny piece of our existence. We have one Sunday. Uh, Sunday, I'm not going to be here in June. Going to be at Jekyll Island, Georgia. Marrying these guys, Shane and Renee, who stayed with us last night. We were talking about how the things of God so often don't make sense. And, and this this, part, this is just a teeny part of what it is. And we all agreed what we want to know more than anything else when we get to heaven is how the plan all just fit together. Because there is a plan. There's a plan that, that, that God is designing. We're going to see it in all its beauty. And the things that we thought that were so awful ended up being beautiful Beyond imagination. When you trust the Lord. Regardless of what's on your doorstep. You won't get drunk to try to forget about your problems. You won't be in a panic. But you'll find peace in Jesus. Which leads to our last point. 
The day of peace and understanding will come at God's discretion. In the meantime, trust Him. The text that we read earlier, Isaiah 29, 15 to 29, is a promise that God will transform the hearts and minds of the meek. Of those who trust the Lord and not their own abilities or in resources that they can access. Of course, God has given us both abilities and resources. That's part of the, of the lesson of, of the end of Isaiah 28 where he's saying, Hey, I, I've set my ways in motion for all of nature. You plow the ground, you plant the seed, and, and, and it comes up, and the farmer beats it up, and, and we get bread. It's all part of a plan. And how do we know that? We just do. God teaches all of us how to live. So it's not that our abilities and resources should not be employed. Absolutely they should. We are created in his image and we know enough of his ways to live fruitful and productive lives. But more than anything else, God wants us to trust him, especially when life doesn't make sense. And if this sounds like a broken record to you, welcome to the scripture. It's what is said over and over and over in the word of God. Trust God when life doesn't make sense. You want your children to trust you and you at times are untrustworthy. God is always worthy of your trust, of my trust. I'm almost certain that there is something in your life that causes you great unease when you think about it. And some of you think about that thing occasionally. Uh, I wish I didn't think about that today. Or some of you thinking about it all day, every day. It's just constantly on your mind. Whatever it is, give it to the Lord. Let the cornerstone be your foundation. Stand on the rock. Take shelter in him. He is worthy of your trust. Let's pray. As the worship team is coming, I will tell you that um, on the last Sunday of the month, uh, we take a benevolence offering. It's, it's to help those. It's one of those resources that we make available. There's so much of this life that is designed and, and just directed by God. And we are commanded to do everything we can for those who are in need of help. Uh, first to the household of God and then to all men and women everywhere. But it's our privilege once a month to give to this, uh, um, uh, this ministry. And so please give generously. You cannot imagine the ways that your gifts have blessed people in need of late. Um, and as we conclude our thoughts about God's word, uh, indeed, it's clear that his desire is for us to trust him no matter what. And Father, I will just say that we believe help our unbelief. It's our desire. And uh, we may have 
uh, great success in these moments where your word is alive to us and walk out the door and get a phone call and everything falls to pieces. I get it. And it's not ever to diminish the severity of the problems that we face that uh, you say these things. Uh, but you know what is best for us. We know our tendency when we don't trust is to move away from you and eventually even to be cynical about your ways. Keep us from that. Keep us in the word. Keep us close to Jesus. In whose name we pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.